Thanks, Chelsea. Isn't it nice just spending a bit of time worshipping God together? Um, so, good morning, everybody. That's good. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Dan. For those who do know me, you can call me Simon. No, I'm joking. I'm Dan to everyone. So let's, but I'm going to share a little bit of my personal reflection, so a um, bit of my life's journey, uh, and I would love to hear some of yours. It's really nice in January we get to hear a bit of people's lives and where they've been, what they've done. Um, I'm the child of a very beautiful, gentle, wise and hard-working woman and the, f- and the son of a butcher and an enthusiastic Christian. So I had four beautiful siblings. I was born in Smithton, Tasmania, the place everyone loves. Um, and uh, yeah, just grew up in Smithton. At the age of four, I moved to Melbourne. My father became a missionary with the Jewish community there and he led a few different mission organisations uh, to do with that. And so I spent all of my primary school over in Melbourne in, a Oakley, in, in Oakley, which is a pretty much a Greek-speaking suburb. Um, Three-quarters of the kids were from Greece, or their parents were, um, and loved that cosmopolitan sort of lifestyle. I, so that was my primary school. When I turned 13, pretty much on my birth, I think it was my exact birthday, um, when I turned 13, we moved from this European-centric Cosmo Melbourne um, back to Smithton. Now, if you know Smithton, it's um, not a very diverse community, or it wasn't back then. Um, so there was a Greek guy who owned the fruit shop. I think that was the multicultural side of it. And, um, and so for me, moving back to Smithton was a really um, interesting time. So what, one of the main things that happened is I, I really struggled to find friends and to make friendships there. Uh, things were just very different. Um, but but I actually, in that time, got to know Jesus personally. Uh, and so I would ride my bike at 5am to go and milk some cows, playing Petra through the headphones, and I would talk to God as though he was right next to me on my bike. And, um, and just we would chat as we rode sort of thing. And, and that was the kind of relationship I had with Christ. Became a Christian at 13, 14 and stuff. Now, one thing that really hits me, as I get to know a bunch of you guys from this church, you only have to scratch a tiny bit of the surface to find out that there's some pretty deep stuff going on underneath or that there's been some pretty deep experiences. We're funny, us people, because we all look like we've got it in control and we're all going okay. But you just scratch under the surface and you realise, oh my goodness, I didn't know that you were carrying that or I didn't know that you had to work your way through that. Um, for me, being in Smithton, by the time I was 15, uh, I, was, I was a Christian, pacifist, didn't swear, blah, 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 uh, and didn't like ACDC or Guns N' Roses. But what it meant was that I actually got bullied pretty hard. Um, the culture in, in that school was really nasty. It was probably, it was definitely my year, probably a fair bit. And, and so I got bullied most lunch times Because I was fairly big, I did a lot of wood chopping and rowing, so I was, you know... I don't know how to say it, buff for my age, but <laughs> I had my grandpa's wide shoulders, which probably was the actual thing. And, um, and so there were some real bullies who wanted to fight me all the time and knew that I wouldn't, so they would actually really test me out. And almost every lunch break, I, I was faced with, want to fight, want to fight, sort of stuff. And for me, it was pretty awful. Uh, and then um, when I was 15, my older brother and I were walking down the street in Smithton and one guy who, I think he's six foot seven, but he was an 18-year-old, um, jumped out of his car and punched us both out. And, and from that moment, uh, it really triggered something for me and I found what it was to live in fear. So I, I know there's all these different levels of it, but for me, uh, I was 
pretty terrified to walk down the street. Walking to school and back home was just so intense for me for a year and a half, um, what, going through all that. And because this guy knew all the bullies, the bullies would tease me all the more. So for me, learning to live with fear was really significant. Um, so, you know, you just scratch under the surface and you see there's stuff got, that's been going on. When I was 13, my mum got diagnosed with MS, um, by, which was, and by the time I reached 15, we were, we were basically doing all the housework and cooking and stuff. By the time I was 17, I remember there was an MS Society house in Hobart, and I brought mum down as soon as I got my peas. Just for a holiday, she would just lay in the house and rest, and I would go and see Hobart. Um, and they were really beautiful experiences. But by the time she were, I was 18, we were hand-feeding mum and really looking after her. Um, and so, so for me, going through that as a teenager, you know, looking after the house and stuff and, and all that, it's pain that has built me to who I am, a part, part of who I am. Um, one, one part of all that, was uh, I'm going to tell my story in three different phases. What, I'm going to skip ahead. We moved to England when I was 28, I think it was. And um, in, in England, my mum was still alive for, for another year while I was in England. And so moving there was quite a big decision. Um, but I remember when I turned 30, my, my father has um, quite strong Christian beliefs that are pretty black and white and the fact that I was willing to work with people who'd been divorced and remarried meant that he wasn't allowed to associate with me because I wasn't being true to my Christianity in, in his view. And so he said, by the time you reach 30, if you still believe this, then you'll no longer be welcome at our house, at, at our table. And so I remember Danny and I came back from England, sat beside the bed, um, uh, because mum's, mum's in bed, that's where you hang out, and... And Dad, would, Dad just explained that you believe the same thing, so you're no longer welcome, and so we had to leave. Um, it was only a few months after that that my mum passed away. Uh, I, I rang my, my, da my dad and said, look, of course I'm coming over for the funeral. Um, I've been over a few times to say goodbye to her, but I, I'll, I'll be there for the funeral. And, so, and he said, oh, are you coming here? And I, and I said, well, that's a bit weird. I didn't think I was allowed. And so I... I was like, well, yeah, okay, <laughs> they're your silly rules, I'll come to your place, no problem. And, and in the end, I, I got, flew all the way from England, got to um, Melbourne, drove to his place, um, and, then, and then I got to the door and knocked, and, and, his, and, and Dad just said, um, do you still believe the same stuff? Uh, and I said, well, yeah, nothing's changed. And he said, well, why are you here then? And... And for me, if you talk about pain, that's one of those moments that is the most probably pain that I've faced so far. And just having to work through, how do I be someone who honours my father and loves him but still has to build boundaries against something like that so, so to protect my heart sort of thing. And, and so just going through that journey of losing my mum, the funeral was a complete from my perspective, debacle. It was so bad from my perspective um, that I actually got mum's family after the funeral and said, let's, let's go back to the graveside and we'll do that all over again. And so we went back to the grave and did a funeral in memory of her. Um, so that's, that's something that I carry. You know, you, as I talk to you guys, I see stuff that you carry and it's only just below the surface um, if you ask the right questions. 
So that, that's been a pretty interesting journey for me, working out how do I relate to family and stuff. But, um, yeah, at, so that was um, 2005. Anya was just about to be born, my second child. We ended up having four kids, which was a real blessing. Um, um, but in 20, 2009 to 2011, so I, what happened was the work that I'd committed to, I went to the UK to establish Fusion over there. I gave my all to it, really. Um, we really wanted to see God's kingdom come um, in our country and across the world. And so I just gave everything to it. We worked as missionaries, so we had no income. We just worked on, we call it volunt- um, gift income. So people were supporting us to survive. Um, Danny and I lived in a small two-bedroom over there. We call it a bungalow. Here you'd call it a unit. Um, and so we had four kids living in one room. I had to custom make beds to fit them into that room because we were just living without much income but loving God and serving him. Uh, but it, in 2009, Fusion went through some pretty significant stuff and basically imploded, which meant the outpost of England kind of felt pretty isolated and we no longer had the support that we used to have and Fusion was going through a pretty hard time, which I was right in the middle of, um, so, which was a pretty big deal. For me, that was, as far as my work goes, my career, that was a really tough time of trying to navigate, keeping building God's kingdom, while there's so much stuff that's just falling apart around me and, and holding on through that. Now, that's, the first, that's my first stream of some of the things that I've lived through. If we heard your stories, we would hear similar pain and stuff. But I don't want to be defined by my pain and by things that are beyond my control. And so I want to tell you another stream of my life. Okay? In this one, um, I want to talk about calling. When, when I went to university, I, I went through, so I, I actually escaped Smithton and went to Burnie to Hellyer College, which we call Hellyer, and, uh, and loved it. Um, it. For me, it was a ticket out of Smithton, and so all of a sudden I, I was no longer living in fear. And I just got to find myself there as a young, young late teen. I went on to uni, studied physics and robotics, um, so I, which is great. There were 30 of us who started physics, only three of us finished, because it's, it's such an awesome subject. They save it for the minority. Um, and, but I, I made through all these natural steps. So I kept saying, what should I do next? It's obvious I'll do this and I'll do this. And an architect came in and said, because um, I really wanted to be an architect, and he said, look, there's 30 of you in this class, only three of you are going to get employed because the market's flooded. And I looked around the room, I'm not in the top three. So then I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to be an architect then. And so I just kept doing the next natural thing. Just, but when I got to the end of uni, one funny part, sad, sad, is that when I finished uni, I thought, well, now I've got to get a job. And so I was reading The Advocate. The only job that I could find in the paper was one for, you know, those Kino machines with the vacuum and the balls that spin around and then come out in order, lucky numbers. Um, So they make those in Launceston. So I applied for that job and I didn't even get an interview. Um, And I was really qualified for something like that. Anyway, I I didn't get that job. And even before I didn't get that job, I just went, my goodness what am I doing like why am I applying for that job that's not my path and so it was really it was good for me it was really obvious that's not my path and so we'd organized a youth camp for a bunch of young adults to come out uh, in Smithton we actually got combined youth groups together and for Smithton that was a really big deal across denominations about seven youth groups coming together to do New Year's Eve together 
And I remember um, at about 1 a.m. after everyone gone to bed and we were all getting sorted, I then went out and had a bit of space to myself. And I went and sat out on a hurdy-gurdy thing at Riverbend, and um, dizzy-wizzy, and just spinning around. And, and I really remember just having that night with God. It was New Year's. I'd finished uni. What's next? And so I, I just said to God, God, I really want you to just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I said, I'm going to flick my Bible open. I'm going to point to a verse. I don't recommend that, by the way. It occasionally works. Um, so I, but on this occasion, God actually was um, very generous to me. And so I just opened the Bible, pointed to a verse. It was in red, even better. And, and the verse said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I actually, my first reaction was frustration because I was like, no that's the wrong way around I'll do anything you just tell me and I'll do it and he just says well what do you want me to do for you and that that passage has been pretty important for me this it's from Matthew 29 right at the end of Jesus ministry before his crucifixion Um, he walks across the Jordan I'll just read it to you very briefly Um, as as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho a large crowd followed him Two blind men who were sitting by the roadside, um, who were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, "Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us!" And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder. Can you picture that scene when there's a blind beggar on the side of the road and there's someone really important coming past, and the beggar just keeps yelling? Everyone's just saying, "Shut up! Just keep quiet. This is important. Shh, move to the side." Anyway, so the crowd rebuked him. Um, But he shouted all the louder. And then Jesus stopped and he called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they said, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and they followed him. And I felt like this verse for me, especially if you read the Mark version of it, um, one of them sees partially. I kind of get a glimpse of it. I can see, but it's blurry. And then Jesus touches again and then it's full sight. And for me, I feel like that was really important in that moment of God wants me to choose what I do for him as a living sacrifice. I love Romans 12, 1 and 2, we heard last week. Um, and so to offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, is what I wanted to do. So, so I, I said to God, well, I don't think you want me sitting behind a computer screen for the rest of my life. And so the next week I actually went into the Christian school in Smithton and said, I'd like to become a maths and science teacher. Is that possible? And the, the principal, thankfully, he said, well, as long as you're studying your diploma of education while you're teaching, then that's fine. And so for the next four years, I was a maths and science teacher at Smithton, graduated after two years of diploma, and, and loved it. So that was a real ministry for me, of seeing these young people and investing in them. Science was the excuse to invest in their lives and hopefully get them to know Christ. Okay, so I taught there for four years. I moved to Paltina, got married and taught there for a few years and then Fusion asked us to move to England. Um, Now, England was quite an easy decision for me. I'm skipping over a bunch of bits. I can't tell my whole story in the time I have. Uh, We moved to a lovely little village called Wheatley. Um, Now, when I say little village, you'll probably conjure up for thoughts of yourself of, you know, 15, 20 houses and a little brook running through it sort of stuff. Well, Wheatley's 30% bigger than Sorrel. So just to give you a bit of perspective, a small, quaint English village is bigger than Sorrel. Uh, 
the, the high school had a catchment area of 10,000 people and the village itself was 4,500. But it's a small village in England. So we moved to this lovely little village, Wheatley, and started to do ministry there. I, my role was national, so I was working across, at, at its peak, 27 different communities trying to help Christians work together across denominations and love and serve their community. Um, we were running at one time 13 different youth cafes um, and youth, youth drop-ins. Uh, so we had a lot of work around the country, but my real passion was local and missional. Um, and so, so, that, so we really Im- embedded in the local ministry there. Um, Fusion National was kind of what I had to do for my job and then the local ministry was my interest and hobby is, is how, how I really felt it worked. So that, that's a bit of a story of my calling. I'm going to come back to that, that village in a minute. The third part of the story I want to talk about is perseverance and courage. Um, watching people really work through really difficult stuff or challenging stuff and find their way through that path and have the, having the courage to continue is something I really admire in other people. And I want to tell you a bit about perseverance for me. In 2008, I'm pretty sure it's through that grief process of losing mum and facing rejection and stuff. 2008 for me was a real low. Um, I was a full-time missionary, uh, giving my all for the kingdom and really struggling with my relationship with God. So I don't know if you've been in that sort of position where your whole job's around God and stuff, but I'm really struggling with him. And I, I got to a point where I was really questioning, God, are you even there? Like, are you real? And having been a Christian since I was young, it was a point of crisis for me of, do I really believe this stuff about God? And I actually got more and more distant from him. I kind of explain it, if, if God and I in my body are flatmates, so, you know, we're flatmates in my body, and if I'm doing night shift, we almost never see each other, except I might just wake up and walk past and say hey and then head off to work and then come back and he, he says hey and we, we have no connection. We're just living in the same house. That's the analogy I would give it. Um, and so in 2008, uh, September, I was in Poatina for a conference and I just said I can't continue like this and really worked through with God. It had been a few months journey of the grief journey, I think, of um, asking God. I said to him up on the mountain in Poatina, Look, even if you're not real, I'd still choose these values as my way of life because I really believe in this way of life. And it got to that point where even if you're not real, I'm still choosing this. And it's pretty funny because almost instantly, God, I think, flicked a switch for me and he said, of course I'm real, but thanks for choosing my way of life kind of thing. And, and, And within minutes, really, I recommitted and became a Christian the second time Um, and for me that was really strong that was my sort of adult decision of no I really am going to follow God and he is real and I know he's real it's just that if I neglect our relationship I get so distant from him that I start to question it and and so coming back to God coming back to quiet times and devotions and space with him and listening to him then starting to live in that space right now that's so that's 2008 came back swinging got back into mission uh, and fusion kept growing and then dropping and growing and dropping and then sort of three times it sort of fell apart again um, but in 2013 um, I was getting really worn out fusion sort of imploded again uh, sorry my my part of fusion in the UK four out of five staff left within a, within two months of each other and I was left in the office sitting on my own wondering how on earth can I make all this work 
And it was really tough for me. That's why I got two good friends. Uh, there was a Fiona Dingley and Sally who came along and helped really start to just build it up again and let's, go, let's keep going, let's be faithful and let's persevere. But in 2013, I, I decided that I was pre- feeling pretty flat. So I've got a few photos for you. Thanks, Jen. This first one, it's, um, this is the, uh, the Brecon Beacons, and it says, um, well, I was feeling spiritually anemic, so feeling pretty exhausted. Uh, this is a quote from Jenny Garvin, my mother-in-law. She says, eventually I realised it's not that God needed me to have a devotional life, but I needed one for my own sake. I'd read all through the Bible that there were these um, people who'd go up on a mountain to meet with God. And so I said, right, I'm going to go up on a mountain and meet with God. And this is one of the tallest ones I could find. It's only three and a half hours drive from my place. In Tassie, you still have trees. Over there, they've been taken. And then the next, next slide. Um, I, and this, I, I was journaling quite a lot, and this word lacklustre kept coming up for me. So lacklustre, just dull. Um, lacking in vitality or force or conviction, uninspired and uninspiring. And that's, that's kind of where I was at. And I was like, God, we've got to deal with this because I'm lacking luster. And I saw this house as I drove past. No, wait, I didn't see that one. That one is what I think I'm, my life should look like. This, so my life should be nice, attractive, like I'd love to go and spend some time there. That's what my life should look like in mission. But instead it was looking like this guy. <laughs> I drove past this house, quickly pulled over and just resonated with it. All right? It's... It's condemned, it's falling apart. And that's how my life was feeling a bit. Uh, it's um, still trying to be hospitable and still trying to give space, but actually looking and feeling like that. And so I went up this mountain and said, God, we've got to spend time, we've got to meet up. And I climbed up this mountain, so the next slide. I'll tell you a funny thing. I was there totally alone, and it took a long run to get to that photo with my self-timer. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you can't even see me puffing, right? And uh, so anyway, got up this mountain at Brecon Beacons and I just cried out to God. And the first thing that I felt him say to me was, it's pretty funny, Dan, because I actually would have met you in your back garden. You didn't have to come all this way. Um, But then I really felt like, but I'm really glad you're here. And we just had this beautiful walk together, um, just finding space with God and really recommitting and saying, I just need more of you, God, because on my own I can't do it. Okay, and so this being God's ministry. All right, so that's, that's a fair chunk of my journey through, through pain and through perseverance and trying to stick it out. So I want to look at a bit about, well, what's come of, come of all that? So far, it's a pretty sad, mopey story, right? Well, it, it doesn't feel like that to me because um, I don't want to be defined by any of that stuff, but that has formed a part of my character. So in 2004, we moved into this village, Wheatley, for about 30 years, there hadn't been any children's or kids' work. Um, I'm going to fast-track this a little bit. So one lady, as we moved in, she said, I'm going to hire a bus and we'll take as many people who want to come to Legoland. Legoland was only an hour drive away. And so we hire this bus, get the word out, and the whole bus is filled with people that we don't know. And so we drive off to Legoland, kids just screaming and yelling, have a fantastic day and then come back. And that was the first bit of kids and youth work for about 30 years. All right. Then from that point on, we thought, well, we're going to, every summer, we'll actually get together and do a bit of a summer club. So we just, we found enough volunteers and we'd invite the primary school kids to come along and just have a week of singing and playing and craft and getting to know who God is a, a bit. 
Um, but it was really aimed at those outside the church because that's who we were, we were meeting. And for about five or six years, we met in a primary school and it was a lot of fun. It was just a five-day thing, um, but loved it. But through that process, knew that if we're going to actually have an impact in people's lives, if we really want them to find the fullness of life that comes with Christ, then we're going to have to meet them more regularly. So an old couple started an after-school club um, and they ended up getting a whole bunch of kids to this after-school club. They were in their 70s pretty much by that stage and they were a room full of these kids and a couple of helpers. And after the first year and a half, they said, it's a bit much. So, so I helped take it over and, and we, we managed this kids' club, which 10% of the primary school would come to every Thursday. And so we invested and role-modelled and loved these kids every week um, and then when they came to summer club, you could really tell the difference. The people that we'd really invested in and then this week of summer club just thrived. And so we, we started running um, a group called Talk and Tucker. The English love the Aussie phrases, so Talk and Tucker, or the other town called it Food for Thought. Um, and we'd just get together and have food and Bible study, meals provided by some more elderly people, and we'd meet in the lounge room of the elder of the United Reformed Church and just have this Bible study together. We would start investing in these young people. Um, Danny was running dance classes where she had 30 kids just run and do them dance for fun. Um, and as a community of Christians, really loving and supporting the local community and helping it grow. Um, the spiritual climate of that village started to raise to be a christian was good um the village would actually say for those who knew it that they bring values to our community that we want um and so the christian people in, in that community started to grow but I, so one one thing i realized is that over a period of time we our job wasn't to go there and plant a church that wasn't our intention we wanted to go and support the local churches so i was running youth worship services at the Anglican Church and Bible study with the URC and really trying to invest, infuse into those churches to, to bring them um, so that they could get to a point where they weren't always so traditional but they had space for chaos and noise of those who weren't used to church. And, but that journey seemed to be too far for those two churches to get to. Both of them independently in 2013 said to me, we just don't feel like we can bend that far with all that anarchy and chaos and noise because God's given us these people to care for and they won't like church like that. Um, and then the other church, probably a third of them really wanted lively kids' work and the other two-thirds wanted a quiet sanctuary. And it was really tough to try and convince these guys, you've got to let in some chaos. The kids are not just going to sit in a pew quietly these days. And... Um, in 2013, 2014, I'd, I finished with Fusion. I actually got a paid job as a network manager for a, a library management software company. So it was exciting. It was actually great fun. Um, so that was a full-time job. But then we decided, actually, it's time to plant a church that is family and new seekers sort of centred. And so we met with all the Christians. If you went and stood at the roundabout, at Wheatley on a Sunday morning. It was like the mass exodus of Christians, all these Christians leaving to go and worship God somewhere else. And we just said, what would it be like if we could actually get some more of you worshipping locally and building lives, living together? So we really invested in that. Some of the, some of the things that were important to us, Wheatley was a lovely village. I'm used to seeing God's work in some more poor areas where there's greater need. And I kept saying to God, God, why didn't you put us somewhere where there's real significant need? Because your light seems to shine brighter when, there, when there's real need. And God showed me 
just what, what spiritual poverty looks like. We can measure financial poverty with our eyes. So you'll go into a community. I've got a photo coming up in a sec. This is an English estate. And you'll go into a community and you'll see physical poverty with your eyes. All right? You, you get it straight away. But if we want to measure spiritual poverty, that's a really tough thing to notice. And I was finding that in Middle England, and I think Tassie is pretty much the same, if you could, could measure spiritual poverty with your eyes, we would be living in shanty towns. And so God, God showed me, look, if you can reach Wheatley, England's made up of thousands of Wheatleys. And so if you can show Wheatley how to, how to bring a new work of new young people and stuff to life, then you can actually really invest in the UK. So, so that's what we did. We, really, we started a new church. Our first Sunday had 61 people in it, but that's because of all this summer club 10 years that we'd done uh, of, of mission. So let me show you those photos. I can't remember which one's next, Jen. Just chuck it up. All right, so this is, what, 12, 14 years in. There's all the kids, the ones wearing blue are volunteers. Um, and there's a lot of life and fun there. And then the next slide is, this is the youth team that we'd built over that time. And so we had a youth team of over 70 kids who would really give their life for these little kids. And it was a beautiful experience for, for them and for the community to see their young people as a real valued member of the community. Not someone to be threatened, but actually someone who's bringing life. And so that was a really great experience for us. Now, some of the, as we started a church, I'm nearly finished. <laughs> as we started the church, some of the principles we said, most churches spend 80% of their energy and resource on the Sunday morning. We'd really like to flip that upside down. We'd love to spend 80% of our energy and resource in loving and serving the community. And then we'll just try and get together on Sunday and do it as minimally as we can so that we have energy for all the other stuff. Now, it turns out that's not possible because church just takes a lot to run. But that was, that was one of the governing principles that we tried. Um, yeah, and the other things that we'd learnt is that you can't trust a program to bring people to Christ. I think I was brought up thinking, if only I could bring this person to this convention or concert or conference, then they'll become a Christian. But you can't trust a program to bring people to faith. That's out of relationship and, and spending time with people and being with them on their journey towards God. And so just learning that programs don't, they're, they're a good facility, but they won't bring people to faith. It's actually your love and life that does. Um, and especially that outreach is not a PR program for the church. And it's one thing that's a constant tension for us. We would love our church to grow. Like, no question, we would love our church to grow. But if church growth becomes our goal, if we just want to grow our church, then our events become PR campaigns and it's, that's not the way we want to go. Instead, our goal is, without any conditions, just to love and serve relevantly wherever we find ourselves. So in our workplaces, in our community, let's love and serve as best we can. Church growth will be a byproduct out of that if God blesses it. But for us to be a blessing to others, that's our primary goal. And so our church was built around that kind of mentality. So I want to leave you with just this little thought, um, which I've got written here somewhere. Um, for, for me, through my life experience, so you can see the, the pain, the perseverance, but you can also hopefully see some of the fruit. I, I often liken it to if you, if you watch someone walking along, 
For some people, or the wake of a boat, you'll see a path of destruction behind them where they cause pain and they abuse and they just self-seeking. And in their wake or in their footsteps is this destruction. But for someone who's giving their life to the kingdom, I think what you find is as they walk, you see God's little shoots of life and flowers and flourishing coming up behind them. And I think that's one thing that I've really appreciated is watching God grow the ministry as we continue to live for him. Um, So I want to finish with one little reading that has also been an inspiration. So this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, and it's verse 10. Um, It's going to talk about how we build on Christ and his, his calling. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Um, So this is Paul speaking. Someone else is building on it, um, but each one should build with care. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we've got this beautiful cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And then Paul places his brick on top of it. And then we get to place our brick on top of this building that we're building. Their work will, um, so if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a a reward and if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And so this has been part of a motivation for me, not a driver, but a motivator. of I actually want my life to count. And so I actually want to invest into this brick that I'm making something precious and of worth. If I just chuck in a few bits of straw, a few bits of hay, clump it together with a bit of mud, then when it's tested by the fire, as this says, it'll pretty much amount to nothing. But if I can actually invest the precious stones that have been in my life, my, my pain, my moments of trial, my exciting times, if I can invest these kingdom pieces into my brick, then when the fire comes, there will be something of worth and something that others can also build on. And so my, my desire has been, how can I really invest in God's kingdom and build with the stuff that's precious? Often with Christianity, it's seen as an an optional extra to your life and so I'll live my life and then I'll pop a bit of religion on top but for us as a church that's not what we're aiming for but to live whole lives um, sacrificed to God's work so I'm going to leave us with that Uh, I love hearing your stories and I love hearing um, us hearing each other's I'd love to hear how you feel God is leading you and working through your life what he's calling you to what precious stones has he got for you to put into your brick Uh, So I'll I'll leave you with that. We're going to finish with one song. I'll invite the band up. Um, I'll just pray as we close. But this song is a bit of a triumphant one. Um, Just excited to see how God will be using each of your lives. And uh, this is from the youngest to the oldest. What has God got for you this year, this next season, that you can really commit wholehearted to for him? Um, So we're going to sing a bit of a triumphant song. Let me just pray. Father, we invite you into our journeys. Father, we're so thankful that that, um, Jesus has built that cornerstone that we can build on. And I pray that you'll help us to find the things that you want us to do. Father, help us to know how we can give ourselves to you. Help us to know how to love and serve around us. Father, help us not just to seek our own. So, yeah, God, we invite you into that journey and thank you.
Amen. We'll just have a moment of quiet while I get my guitar.